as we begin today in our continuation of uh, in our continuation of our Impact World series, we're in the Book of Acts once again, and what we see here in the Book of Acts is really a reflection of what Jeff read for us in our opening uh, scripture this morning. When we looked at Psalm 34, today I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts 12. And we see in this story a picture of God doing what He does in deliverance of His people, in protection of His own, and in opposition of those who would lift themselves up above Him and against Him. I'll be reading the entire chapter. I invite you to follow along, starting with verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. It was about this time, you may remember that uh, we had a little fast forward here as we established the church in Antioch. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to, the, to answer the door. When, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they said to her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, that must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door they, and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. 
Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us as we explore your word today to recognize that in this contrast how you operate how you treat your people and how you treat those who oppose you, how you treat the humble and how you treat the proud. Lord, teach us as we study today, not just information, but how to live like Jesus for you as we walk by your Spirit. Lord, give us a soft heart, a heart of flesh to receive your word Grant us repentance and humility. We're not capable of it on our own. Humble us, Father, before you have to crush us. Change us by your word that you might receive all glory and honor, not despite us, but through us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus who humbled himself even to death on a cross. Amen. Well, as we, um, as we look at this passage, we see the story of a prisoner and a king. A prisoner who is not really, he's not really fighting against these things, Obviously, Peter's not happy about being in prison, but we see nothing here recorded telling us that he resisted, that he threw a fit, that he, uh, that he complained about the injustice, and it certainly was that. But we see in Herod a different story. Herod was proud of his position. He ruled as king. Now, he was an underling king. He was a, a, a vassal under the Roman Empire. But he exalted himself over the people. Understand this. God is the ruler of all things. He is mighty in power. He is absolute in authority. He accomplishes his purposes in the small and the great by glorious or common means by angels or worms, for the glory of His name, for the glory of His kingdom. 
Today we see this in the stark contrast of what God does in the lives of Peter and Herod. Our core reality for today, this governs the whole passage we're looking at, is that those who give glory to God find freedom. Those who take glory for themselves find judgment. Those who give glory to God find freedom. Those who take glory for themselves find judgment. In other words, lovers of God find favor, lovers of self find sorrow. This has to do with pride and humility. Though neither of these words is used in the passage, the concepts are present and clear. The story isn't really about Peter. We often focus in on that. We like the story of the jailbreak. We like the the imagery of going free. And God intends for us to see that. But as we look at this passage, it's really focused on two major characters, God and what he is doing, and Herod and what he is doing as the antagonist in opposition to God. We see very little actually about Peter. Peter is the one in prison. Peter is the one who is delivered. But Peter is very passive in this. He has virtually no lines in this play. He is there, but things are happening to him. As we look at this, when he goes to the people, even when he gets there, he just says hi Tell him about it and out the door, on his way. The focus here is God and Herod, and mostly God. Isn't that the story of all the Scripture? Everything that we see from beginning to end is the story of God. The story of God in interaction with His people, the story of God in His creation, in the fall and rebellion against Him in His reconciliation, His redemption of all things, and the final consummation that will come. It's all about God. We see today that those who give glory to God find freedom. Those who take glory for themselves find judgment. Now, what are humility and pride? We have uh, pictures in our minds of this. We talk about it. We understand to a certain extent what humility and pride are. But far too often we end up with a a view of it that comes more from, uh, from worldly thinking than from biblical thinking, rather than take you to, uh, to a technical definition, I want to come up with a working definition based on the concepts we see in the Old and New Testament. Now, I'm going to tell you, throughout the Old Testament, especially, boy, when we look at, at the history of Israel, when we look at the prayers and the Psalms, when we look at the guidance of the wisdom books and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, when we look at the the call to repentance among the prophets throughout the Old Testament, this theme of humility versus pride, excuse me, is hard to escape. You can't miss it. The wicked are equated with pride. Those who seek the face of God are equated with humility. These things go hand in hand. The same is true in the New Testament. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of all kings, comes as a humble servant. He is a homeless man going around as an itinerant preacher for those who would look on him through the flesh. This is why Paul would later say, we used to look on Christ through worldly eyes, but we do so no longer. We used to see him 
according to the flesh. Now we can't. We see him as he is through spiritual eyes. Paul, who exalted himself when he was the great Pharisee on the rise, humbled himself when he came to realize who he really was and what Christ had done for him. It's a powerful thing to be humble. What is it? I would use this definition. I submit to you that if you look at the Scriptures, you will find this to be a pretty accurate working definition. Humility is rightly reckoning the reality of who I am before God. Rightly reckoning the reality of who I am before God. I need to understand who I am in truth. Now, I can look pretty good in comparison to other people because we are all idiots together. I can exalt myself by simply looking at how bad you are. It's easy to do, isn't it? I might seem really humble next to an arrogant political leader or Hollywood celebrity. I can really make myself look good if I slide the scale. But if I measure myself against God, and I understand who I am as I stand before the holy God, there is no place for haughtiness and arrogance. And I'm humbled. Humility is rightly reckoning the reality of who I am before God. Pride, then, I would submit to you, is the opposite of this. When I am wrong in my understanding of the reality of who I am in relationship to God. Pride, then, I would say, is seeing myself as better or more important than I am. As better, in other words, thinking of myself more highly than I ought, thinking that I'm more righteous, thinking that I'm more together, thinking that I'm not really together, but I'm more spiritual, thinking perhaps that I am more humble than I actually am. Or thinking that I'm more important. That my desires matter more than they do. That my goals matter. That my priorities, my values matter more than they do. When I do this, I put myself at the center of the universe. At the center of my universe. I wrongly understand the reality of who I am in relationship to God. It puts me on the throne. When I see myself as better or more important than I am, I dethrone God and I take His place as the sovereign of my world. Now, don't misunderstand. False humility or self-abasement, looking down on myself, putting myself down, these are just pride in disguise. It's an over-focus on myself, on my own worth or my own lack of worth. God can't love me because I'm too bad. I rate my badness above God's mercy, above God's sovereignty. Well, I know God said this, but clearly I don't qualify. And I put my own understanding, my own opinion, ahead of what God's Word actually says. Self-abasement and false humility that groveling mentality 
are really just pride in disguise. C.S. Lewis said that it's, humility isn't thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. I take the focus off of me. I put the focus on the one to whom it is owed. Romans 12.3, Paul says it this way. I say to you, brothers and sisters, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of grace God has given you. He doesn't say put yourself down. Reckon reality rightly. See yourself as you really are before a holy God. This is humility. Well, as we see this in in this particular story, recognizing that Peter is not the focus. Peter is a player, but he is a supporting character here. Which is interesting because this is really the last place that we see Peter as a major focus in the book. Starting with the next chapter, it's going to transfer over to the ministry of Saul, mostly known as Paul. And Peter will get mentioned again, but only in passing. So his closing scene which I think is such a a beautiful irony as he is used to demonstrate this humility versus pride in chapter 12, Peter is essentially unimportant. How humble that Peter has very little to add to this. Something he had to learn over time. There was a time when Peter put the focus on himself, his priorities over God's priorities. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not on my agenda. You're on your agenda. That's pride. Now we're at a point where Peter, as the the spokesperson of the church, the most prominent person in Christianity, no longer holds on to that pride. Well, let's take a look at the text. We're going we're gonna to move through this and see that <clears throat> there is this interaction between God and Herod. There are three things that we're going to see as we take a look at the text. First, God rescues his servant and foils Herod's plans. God rescues his servant, that's Peter, and foils Herod's plans. Herod has something in mind. God says, I don't think so and does something different. Second, notice, God protects His glory and ends Herod's life. Herod lifts himself up. God says, I don't think so, ends his life in a very telling way. Third, notice that God advances His purpose and reverses Herod's goal. He advances His purpose and reverses Herod's goal. Herod has, has a plan to wipe out these Christians, and God does just the opposite. Let's take a look at the text, looking at uh, the very beginning here. It was about this time, remember that the, that the church had been experiencing a period of relative peace. There wasn't significant persecution after Saul's conversion, the church had been growing in, in, a, in a peaceful, uh, more normal setting. But now Herod starts to kick it in. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. This Herod, by the way, is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the 
uh, the king, he was the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. Terrible dude. It's a bad family just all the way around. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the king, the Herod, at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Herod Antipas is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Terrible dude. Terrible family all the way around. And now Herod Agrippa has this ignominious end. It's not the end of the line of Herod's, but it's very close to it. It was about this time that King Herod arrested someone who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. That was his plan. God foils it by rescuing Peter. He intends to persecute them. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John. You may remember them as the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. This is James the Apostle, one of the twelve, and he has him put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now we're not told why he seizes Peter, what specific thing. Obviously it's tied to his faith. We know that it's because Peter is a Christ follower and is putting it out there. We don't know whether there's a specific event. What we do know is Herod saw the polling numbers after he had James beheaded or put to death with the sword, whether it's beheaded or impalement, he is put to death with the sword. This is a treatment of a heretic. And as he sees this go well, ah, I see, I'm going to get real popular, I'm going to take Peter in. I'm going to get the head here, you know, he cut off the head of the snake kind of thing. So he brings Peter in, planning to uh, to put him on trial. Verse 3, when he saw that he uh, this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. That's the week-long celebration following Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. So that's 16 guards in rotation through the watches of the night. So you have four on, on guard at a time. He's never guarded by less than four people. Herod intended, <clears throat> excuse me, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. When he says after the Passover, he's not speaking of the day, but, but the entire festival, Passover plus the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So when this is all over, he's going to bring him out, have this public trial so that he can gain this popularity with the people. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That's what we do in times of trouble, isn't it? We seek God's face. When the church is in trouble, the church seeks the God of the church. We don't need to focus on human justice our way. We need to seek the just one to be our deliverer. That does not mean that we don't work for it. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, we see Paul in particular use human civil means to be able to accomplish what he is trying to do. But always, always earnestly praying to God. The church is praying to God for him. Verse 6, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries, two other soldiers, stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. This is not normal, by the way. It's unusual. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. 
Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Imagine you get, you know, somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night, and you're a little bit groggy, right? And it's a shining person. It probably feels like a dream. For you and me, it probably is a dream. For Peter, it's reality, present reality. But he thinks he's having some kind of a vision. Not surprising, since he just had a really huge vision just a few chapters ago. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now it's not until the angel leaves him that Peter sees it. The whole time this is going on, the whole time God is working, God is delivering him, Peter doesn't realize he's being delivered. How true for us. God does stuff in our lives. We don't even know it. We're watching it. We're seeing it, but we don't realize it. It's not until it's over, not until the angel leaves him, that in verse 11, then Peter came to himself, came to his senses, and said, Ah, ha, ha, I get it now. Now I know without a, God, without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Now this is an important thing. His priority, as soon as this happens, is to go find the brethren, to get with the church. He recognizes the primacy of the church, just as Christ did. It's Jesus' church. It's still Jesus' church. We are the body of Christ. This is central to all things having to do with our faith. It's central to our very life. Peter, on being delivered, he seeks out the believers. That's where he finds strength in trouble. They prayed for him. That's where we celebrate together when prayers are answered. So he goes to the house of Mary. This apparently is a place where the believers gathered regularly. Uh, some say it may have even been the, uh, the upper room uh, where the disciples met for the Last Supper. I, I don't know the veracity of that, uh, but I read it in a couple of sources. Mary happens to be the mother of John, also called Mark. John Mark will come up again later. In fact, at the end of this chapter, he goes out and travels with Barnabas and Saul. That story will continue later. He goes to the house where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda, this Rhoda would be a hired servant, who is uh, obviously by her excitement either a believer and is a part of the church body or is at least sympathetic with the church and is invested in this. So she's excited that this happens. In fact, so much so she begins to open the door. Verse uh, where am I at here? Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Ah, you're nuts. You're out of your mind, they told her. Now they're praying for Peter's deliverance, right? They're praying for him, but they still can't grasp what God's doing. They can't imagine that God would do that. They wouldn't even think of that. Even to the point where they're more reticent to believe that, that Peter's delivered and present, than to believe that Peter's angel, the, their 
understanding their beliefs, whether right or wrong, were that each person had a guardian angel who often would take on the form or the appearance of the person that they were assigned to. So they were more reticent to believe that Peter was delivered than that an angel was at the door. You're out of your mind. It must be his angel. Verse 16. Peter kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, now this isn't the James that was just killed. That wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? This is James, the brother of Christ. He'd become a leader, perhaps the prominent leader in Jerusalem. Uh, Many would say he was the pastor at Jerusalem. He's the author of the book of James, half-brother of Christ, same mom, different dad. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. Then he left for another place. Again, we see humility demonstrated. Peter's like, hey, leadership. Tell James what happened. Peter, having been the spokesperson, is quick and easy to defer this position of leadership, this position of prominence, to someone else. He defers to James and the others. And he just goes on his way. This is awesome. I got work to do. Here we go. It's not about Peter. That's humility. In the morning, verse 18, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Not surprising. After Herod had a a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. He asserts his dominance here by having them executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea. Caesarea was the the seat of the proconsul assigned to the region. When there wasn't a proconsul assigned, then Herod would often use that as his capital of sorts, and he would go and, and reign from there. He went to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They were a, a little bit north of Caesarea. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. This is interesting. He has set up a day where he's going to go make a speech. The people are there. They want to meet with him. They want to get his favor. They want to please him. They want to make him happy so that they can get a good trade deal. Herod's there, dressed in his royal robes. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes these robes as shining silver robes. Perhaps silver woven into them. But these are opulent robes that stand out as he exalts himself through this. He's there on this appointed day, wearing his royal robes, sitting on his throne, delivered a public address. Verse 22, they shouted, of course they did, This is the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. God was not going to allow Herod in this particular case. It doesn't mean he judges everything instantly. Physical death is one thing. Everybody dies. He strikes Herod down because Herod pretending to be a Jew, pretending to be the king of the Jews, allows himself to be deified, essentially. He fails to give praise to God, and God brings him down. 
Check out Daniel chapter 4. See what God does to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, read chapters 2 through 4. You see the humility of Daniel, God's deliverance of his servants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God's exaltation of his humble servant Daniel, who never fails to give credit to God, and Nebuchadnezzar, who exalts himself, and God brings him low until Nebuchadnezzar eventually, in God's time, comes to his senses and gives praise and glory and honor to God on high, the God of Israel. It's a very similar picture. So God strikes Herod down. An angel comes, strikes him down. Uh, Historians say that, that this took some time. He was immediately struck, but he died after passing time in excruciating pain as he was eaten from the inside out by worms. And all God's people said, yuck. This is gross, slimy, disgusting. And God delivers his servant, Peter, with a mighty and glorious shining angel, light shining in the cell. And he strikes down the one who would exalt himself, puts him to death, but not just death. It would be too good for him to just be struck down by a glorious angel. Oh no. You're going to go down by worms. We're going to tell you what your status is. God brings him down. And in the midst of this, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Notice Herod's prideful priorities. This is how Herod exalts himself and God brings him down. His first priority is power. He asserts himself to show dominance. He has James put to death by the sword. He has, uh, when he can't find Peter, he has the guards executed. He asserts himself so that he can show dominance. He has a priority, a lust for power. We see also his love of popularity. This adulation of the Jews that follows James' execution fires him up. Hey, hey, they like me. You like me. You really like me. And that fuels Peter's arrest. The polling numbers went up, so I'm going to keep doing more of that. He prioritizes his own pleasure. Tyre and Sidon appealed to this pursuit of his own pleasure to get what they needed. Before he became king, we don't see it in this story, but before Herod is king, he actually was in exile and was imprisoned because he, having been adopted, taken in by the emperor Tiberius, so spent himself on lavish, frivolous, wasteful living that he got himself into exorbitant debt. And it caused all sorts of problems. He had a love for pleasure. Last prideful priority we see here is a love of praise. Power, pleasure, power, popularity, pleasure, and praise. The folks from Tyre and Sidon stroked his ego. This was the last straw. He was happy to be elevated to a godlike status. And God said, no, no, no. We're going to put this down. All right, so when we see all this happening, there are some things that we need to recognize. God, as we mentioned before, rescues his servant and foils Herod's plans. He protects his glory when Herod allows himself to be exalted 
as the one who is allegedly representing God, representing God's people Israel, and he allows himself to be deified in effect, that exaltation causes God to bring him low and he ends his life. Not just ending his life, but humiliating the end of his life. And we see that God advances his purpose, his purpose being the spread of the gospel, the advancement of the kingdom, and reverses Herod's goal. Herod's goal was to exalt himself and to eliminate Christianity. Eliminating Christianity was part of exalting himself. We want to wipe out this church. We want to wipe out these people. We're going to shut it down. God reverses that and not only keeps him from eliminating, eradicating the Christians, but also advances it through it. Notice that last verse that we saw. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. There's a contrast between what happens to Herod and what happens to the church. Let's put this into some practical terms for ourselves. Our memory verse for today is that when uh, is from Matthew chapter twenty-three, verse twelve. <clears throat> Excuse me, Matthew twenty-three, twelve says, "For those who exalt themselves will be humbled; those who humble themselves will be exalted." Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. You can see how that fits our core reality for this passage. Those who give glory to God find freedom. Those who take glory from themselves find judgment. I don't want to be the one who exalts myself and is humbled by God. Do you? Let's figure out how we can fix this. We need to recognize when we exalt ourselves. I exalt myself... When, first, my purposes are more important to me than God's purposes. My purposes, what I have planned, my agenda, what I want, my will, my determination, when that's more important than God's purposes, what He intends for my life, what He intends to to accomplish through my life, when my purposes become more important to me than God's purposes, I'm exalting myself. I'm putting myself on the throne. What I think, what I want, what I, my, my goals out there, my intentions are more important than God's. I exalt myself when my needs are more important to me than others. When my needs are more important to me than others, i got to get mine. You can fend for yourself. We talk in terms of privilege a lot in in our society these days. When I, in my privilege, when things are going well for me, I can be satisfied and not look to defend others who are oppressed. I exalt myself. When my needs are more important to me than others, I become tight-fisted, selfish, rather than generous. I exalt myself when my rightness is more important to me than grace. When my rightness is more important to me than grace. Seems like we see this a lot when it comes to political things. One of the beautiful things about social media is you can always be right. You just post whatever you say and 
You own the world. And we are so quick to argue. We are so bent on promoting our position. That Trump is always wrong. That Governor Whitmer or Nancy Pelosi is always wrong. And we get so focused on how right we are. We do the same thing in our homes, don't we? What leads to the fights and quarrels among us? We want something, we don't get it. I want my wife to recognize how right I am. Yeah, that doesn't go well. That sort of pride, that sort of self-exaltation puts us on the throne. It's the opposite of Christ-like character. I exalt myself when my purposes are more important to me than God's purposes, when my needs are more important to me than others, when my rightness is more important to me than grace. Man, we need to show grace. I exalt myself when my feelings are more important to me than God's word. When my feelings are more important to me than God's word. We despair because things seem dark. Probably felt pretty bad to Peter. He's in that cell. Just saw his close, close friend, one of his 12 closest friends on earth, put to death by the same guy that just arrested him. Herod's foaming at the mouth. Peter's feelings had to be overwhelming. But Peter rests. Notice that he's sleeping between these guards the night before he goes to trial. He's not tossing and turning, waiting for some terrible thing to happen oh i'm doomed poor me this is terrible what a terrible circumstance oh god i've only given you everything how could you let this happen to me he looks at what he knows from the scripture he looks at what happened to jesus and he says in his mind and his heart my god will deliver me and if he doesn't so be it may god be glorified I exalt myself when my feelings are more important to me than God's Word. I exalt myself when my goals are more important to me than serving others. When my goals are more important to me than serving others. When other people become obstacles blocking my goals, I get real upset. That's not what we're called to as Christ followers. Jesus humbled Himself and took the cross for us before we were looking for it while we were still sinners. When my goals, the things that I want, what I had planned, when that's more important to me than serving other people, I exalt myself. You see that in the picture that Jesus gives us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've got people who should know better who pass by the Samaritan because they got stuff, right? Stuff's happening. Now, we're not given a lot of detail in the parable, because that's the nature of parables, as to what's going on in their hearts. But whatever they have planned is more important than serving this person. Except for the Samaritan, who is considered an outsider by the Jews, and says, whatever I got planned is going to have to wait. Somebody's got a need. I've got to take care of it. I exalt myself when my goals are more important to me than serving others. 
I exalt myself when my reputation is more important to me than my holiness. I exalt myself when my reputation is more important to me than my holiness. When I get concerned about what others think rather than what God thinks. I'm just going to let that one ride. I exalt myself when my cultural values are more important to me than biblical values. When my cultural values or my personal values are more important to me than biblical values. I exalt myself, don't miss this now, when the American way, when the American values, when my political perspective, when my human judgment is more important to me than the way of Christ. Or justice as I define it through human eyes is more important to me than God's justice. My cultural values, my personal values begin to trump what God's Word actually says. When I am more concerned about don't tread on me than I am about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, then I am exalting myself. I am making myself God. Just like Herod. Lastly, I exalt myself when my earthly identity is more important than my spiritual identity. When my earthly identity is more important than my spiritual identity. When I see myself through eyes of flesh so that my identity comes from my job, from my marital status, from my fitness, my body image, my education, my skin color, my ethnicity, my sexual orientation, how I identify in my gender. When I see myself in these ways, and it becomes more important to me than my spiritual identity, who I am in Christ, what God's Word says about me, who I really am when I stand before a holy God, when I see myself through human eyes rather than through the lens of God's Word and spiritual eyes, I exalt myself. It does not matter how just a cause or an identity seems. I must see reality through God's eyes. I need to reckon rightly the reality of who I am before God. I can't see myself through a worldly lens. We can count on the fact that exalting ourselves in any of these ways results in God opposing us, humbling us. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's land the plane here. Understand that we exist. Everything exists. We exist for God's glory and pleasure. Not for mine. For His. 
All things were created for His glory and pleasure. When our goals and motivations are self-driven or human-centered, we create idols of them. When our goals and motivations are self-driven, human-centered, we create idols of these goals and motivations. We exalt ourselves and our own selfish desires over God. You can count on the fact that God will crush all idols. When our focus, our priority is living for God, then we find that He gives us all things richly to enjoy. When we stop seeking those things and start seeking Him, then we find that we glorify Him by enjoying Him and all that He gives us. And He gives us all things. He frees us from the bondage of sin and self so that we can live a life pleasing to Him by the Holy Spirit who gives freedom. Those who give glory to God find freedom. Those who take glory for themselves find judgment. This is the nature of the gospel. When we're humble enough to see ourselves rightly before the Holy God, we know that we fall short and that our sin separates us from Him. To those who will come empty-handed, seeking mercy, God has given grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it is a free gift to those who will seek the Lord rather than exalt themselves. Jesus is our liberty, our freedom, our life. If we'll humble ourselves before the Lord, we will find that He lifts us up, sets us free, and gives us more and better blessings than we could have even thought to ask for, both now and in the life to come. Let's pray together. Father God, I ask that you would help us to see the necessity of humility in our lives. Help us to reckon reality rightly. Help us to see where we have put ourselves on your throne and sought to depose you. Oh, Father, break us now so you don't have to crush us later. Give us a desire, a will to put away our idols to strip away all the titles, to take hold of the joy and freedom that comes with humbling ourselves before the Holy and Majestic One. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. Amen.